I'm here today with Frank Schaefer, a New York Times bestselling author of more than a dozen fiction and nonfiction books, including Crazy for God and Keeping the Faith, a father-son story about love in the United States Marine Corps. His new book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, is scheduled for release on November 2nd. Frank is a survivor of both polio and an evangelical fundamentalist childhood. He's an acclaimed writer who overcame severe dyslexia, a homeschooled and self-taught documentary movie director, and a film director of four low-budget Hollywood features that he describes as pretty terrible. <laughs> He's also an artist with a loyal following of collectors who own many of his oil paintings. He's spoken at dozens of major universities, libraries, museums, from the Hammer in L.A. to Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. His three semi-autobiographical novels about growing up in a fundamentalist mission have been translated into nine languages. His video blogs posted on Facebook have had more than a million views. Frank is a guest commentator on MSNBC, has been frequently interviewed by Rachel Maddow. He's been interviewed on almost every major TV show from Oprah to the Today Show to 2020. His memoir, Crazy for God, is used as a textbook in history of religion classes, courses on comparative religion, and socio sociology classes in public and private universities. You can visit his website to learn more at lovechildrenplanet.com. So, Frank, it is such an honor and a privilege to have you here with us today. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank you, Brian. And, you know, it's interesting. We were talking for a couple minutes before we started this, and um you know, it turns out that you and I have so many similar interests. I mean, named in no order of importance, you're interested in publishing, in authors, in Black American authors in particular right now, in your grandchildren, in trying to look back from the point of view of someone in their 60s at what we've learned on the way through, and um, in, in writers in general, uh, with Beekner and other people you've done work with and for. So uh, it's always lovely to meet somebody that you know you're going to share a lot of interest with. So I really look forward to this. And thank you so much for your interest in my new book. And, um, you know, as I mentioned when we were talking a moment ago, you know, there, there used to be a publishing industry and there used to be readers. I'm not sure anymore. Everything's online now. So I need all the help I can get in drawing attention to anything that is, you know, on the written page, especially if you're like me and you like to read on the page. Thanks for giving me your platform for a second to, to, to say those things and to draw attention to this work that I've been doing. Well, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. I mean, I've only started reading the book, so I've got a ways to go, but it's already fascinating. I didn't want to put it down, you know, last night when I was, uh, was reading it. And, um, yeah. you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are going to love this. Hmm. Good. So, you know, I think it's got a great future, but you know, we'll help to get the word out. No question. I hope so. <laughs> well, before we get into the new book, you know, you've got such a, a fascinating background. Um, I'd love for you to just share with folks that aren't familiar with you. Sure. Well, let me let me sort of start backward from what I'm doing today uh, and then give you something more of a background that you're expecting. Um, as soon as we're done here, I'm going to walk up the street and pick up one of my five grandchildren, Nora, who happens to be seven. Uh, she just finished a summer camp. I take care of her every day. She will be here with me. I'm going to cook her lunch, pick some fresh Swiss chard in the garden that she helped me plant a few months ago. And I have been doing this for the last 12 years, taking care of five, uh, three of my five grandchildren. And these happen to be the three youngest. They live across the street. Every time they walk down my drive, it's a special gift beyond simply grandparenthood because they are the children, Lucy, Jack, and Nora. Lucy now 12. 
uh, Jack 10, Nora 7, of John, my son, who was in the Marine Corps, who fought in Afghanistan, two tours of duty there, one in Iraq, back at the beginning of those interminable wars, seems like a lifetime ago, came home alive. The driveway crunches every time the postal van comes down, you hear the gravel. And during the time he was in combat, every single day I heard that van coming down. I wondered if it was a van with two Marines in dress blues come to tell me my son had died. Wow. So having gone through that, I've got to tell you, everything else is, is a treat. And it's just as if, you know, okay, this is the undeserved happiness uh, where other people suffered so much more who lost sons or had people injured and so on. Having gone through that, taking care of his children and have him live across the street um, not only fills my heart up every day, but it, it's kind of to the point where you're asking me about books and a writing career and all this interesting stuff. Yes, all those things are interesting, but they do not even register on my scale of what I really do and care about. So I've, you know, I'm not being flip here, but I've spent as much time thinking about Nora's lunchtime menu that I'll cook for her today as I have about anything to do with publishing uh, or a new book coming out. Well, good for you. That's my priority. Now, going back a little further, I was raised in Switzerland by evangelical missionary parents, Francis Nita Schaefer, who became household words in the evangelical community with many best-selling books. And in a, in a little ministry called La Brie Fellowship, my dad and mom began it in 1947 after World War II to minister to young people in Europe. They located in Switzerland because the infrastructure hadn't been bombed into the Stone Age, like France and England and Germany and the other countries caught up in the war. They then stayed on and started this ministry called La Brie, which means the shelter in French. And I grew up there. The first part of my childhood, it was a very simple, regular, ordinary, little fundamentalist evangelical commune. Then two things happened. My dad got interested in art and culture. And all of a sudden, he's giving lectures on Renaissance art, the work of Bach, the, the relationship to the Southern Renaissance, to the Dutch and Northern Renaissance, Bob Dylan's early albums, Woody Allen's first films. And all of a sudden, students were coming are starting to find him very cool and a, a real cultural savant. And people who you would associate with the evangelical world start showing up at this little mission, like Timothy Leary, the guru oh, of wow. the drug culture. Uh, lots of British rock and roll people. Uh, and I, I mentioned this because dad's now known as one of the fathers of the religious right. But if you had checked in with me in, say, 1959 through 1968, you would have thought that you were in a sort of a, a, a small open community of chalets gathered in a tiny mountain village, sort of weird hippie Christians <laughs> with open home policy, lots of stuff on culture, Bible studies, Jesus still being preached as the way of salvation, but nevertheless, all this other stuff, very kind, very open, very non-racist, open to gay people and so forth. Not liberal, very fundamentalist, but this weird connection to culture. So that was the, that's where I went into my childhood and my early teens. And then dad started writing bestsellers, got very famous in the evangelical community, winds up, winds up writing a book called How Should We Then Live, which I, as a young aspiring filmmaker, turn into a multi-million dollar documentary series. Last episode of that is on Roe v. Wade and abortion. That attracts the attention of an old family friend, Dr. C. Everett Koop, who is the surgeon in chief of Philadelphia Children's Hospital, soon to be Ronald Reagan's surgeon general. 
he comes and talks me, me, not my dad, into talking my dad into making another book film project called Whatever Happened to the Human Race that then would feature my dad and C. Everett Koop as co-authors of the book on which I wrote the screenplay and did the movies, another multi-million dollar series. By the time we had toured 20 uh, cities in America with that, um, all of a sudden evangelicals who had been either ambivalent about the issue of abortion or overtly pro-choice, like Dr. Billy Graham, the evangelist, who would not join our little crusade, Dr. Chris Wall, who was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention at the time, the most conservative denomination in the country on a large scale, who was pro-choice. Believe it or not, in, 70, in the 1970s, evangelicals were not by any means uniformly anti-abortion. But we had talked enough people like Jerry Falwell, who founded the Moral Majority and others into this, so that by the time we were done and you checked in with the evangelical community, say by 1980, abortion, Roe v. Wade, and all sorts of other social litmus test issues were now defining American white evangelical Christianity. Fast forward to the Trump era, these became the voters or their children did or their children's children did who put Trump in power. Um, get to the storming of the Capitol and all of a sudden you've got people doing this in the name of Jesus and uh, you know all the carrying a cross with them and so forth. So my life, my 69 years on this earth have sort of been an arc and that arc that I've traveled has seen a real chunk of American history formed by my father and me as his nepotistic sidekick making these movies and going on the road with him. And I have left that environment Okay, so the writerly part of me has two halves. I wrote a couple books using the nepotistic Schaefer name within the evangelical community that became instant bestsellers, not on the merits, but just I was dad's son. After I left the community and went to Hollywood and made some movies using the reel, the show reel I cut out of the Christian film series, cutting all the God bits, they were good enough so I could get an agent and start getting work as a director in Hollywood. And during that time, I realized I was making really shitty movies uh, for people, not enjoying doing the projects. And my wife, Jeannie, said, look, why don't you write a screenplay based on the stories you tell our children about growing up in this crazy fundamentalist hippie commune place in Switzerland? Out of that came my first novel, Portofino, serious publishing effort with Macmillan and then Penguin Press picked it up. It got a lot of good reviews. Two more came out, Saving Grandma and Zermatt. And this trilogy became real international bestsellers. Um, after that, I was a, quote, secular writer, hated by the evangelical community because I was talking about the fact that I had not only moved beyond that, but I deeply regretted my involvement in the religious right and have now spent more than 35 years writing, talking, and advocating against that and trying to show there's a better form of spirituality. And then fast forward to the present, I have a number of books that you talked about, uh, like uh, Crazy for God, which is a memoir on why I came out of the evangelical community, and Keeping Faith, a father-son story about love in the United States Marine Corps, and others, some of which have been bestsellers, some of which have sunk like stones into a pond never to be seen again. So I've had a writerly career. I've got maybe 12, 13, 14 books out um, at present. And then the latest one is this one that you talked about, which is fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy. And just to be totally up to speed on that, I thought this would be maybe a year or two year project. And then I have some very sciencey friends. And because it gets into a lot about biology and evolution and parenthood and, and all the rest of this, 
I began to send them bits and pieces and they kept sending me reading lists saying they liked it, but I needed to read more books and it turned into a five-year project. <laughs> and basically it, it is simply this. It is asking people to redefine what we think makes us happy and gives us joy in terms of human relationships first and career and success as we define it and education second. Doesn't mean it's one or the other. It's just calling us to a different set of priorities. And that's what the book is about. So that's a long, convoluted, crazy answer. But I've had a long, convoluted, crazy life. Uh, so forgive me for giving you such a... a no, endless. no, that's what I wanted people to hear. I mean, it is such a fascinating, you know, to have kind of skyrocketed, you know, within the evangelical community, um, you know, with your parents, with your father. Yeah. And then basically, you know, completely divorce yourself from that. Yes. Completely. You know, and I don't want to say go the opposite end of the spectrum, but I mean, you know, that's probably pretty much the case, you know, that, that you, yeah. you know, rebelled, you know, spoken against very actively a lot of the things that um, you were told what you did, yes. you know, uh, from that initial era. So, you know, I think that uh, that. I'm sure that makes for a great book with, you know, crazy. Well, when, I was, God, but I mean, when I was writing this one, you know, my editor, Christine Belleris at HCI Press said, look, you have a little bit about your upbringing. It's just enough to get people interested, not enough to satisfy anybody. You've got to rewrite the forward and tell people who you are. Yeah, yeah. I'm sick of who I am, to be honest with it. I'm sick of telling this story. Uh, you know, I was dad's nepotistic, greedy, young, ambitious sidekick in the 70s, okay? And I'm very sorry about what we did. But I'd just like to write a book now about relationships and children and evolution and why love makes us a lot happier than money and so forth. But I had to give a context. So at the beginning of, of the new book, Fall in Love, I do talk about this. And then we move on into- It's important. Other, I think that was really wise advice. Yeah. And, 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 you know, be that as it may. And the thing is, Post Donald Trump, how am I ever going to escape questions about the religious right? I mean, it's impossible. I was there and I bitterly regret it. I've spent my life trying to undo some of the damage. And by the way, uh, did not rebel in the sense of saying, okay, I'm done with Christianity or any sort of point on an intellectual or theological basis. Rather, weirdly, people say, well, why did you, how did you start your journey out? I began to compare all these criminal operations run by people like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, Ralph Reed, and these other big time Christian leaders who are in it for the money, prestige and power to my background in a genuine little faith mission before my dad got famous. I've actually seen what real Christian work looks like. He didn't have a car. He didn't have a secretary. He worked on the side of his bed in a, in a rocking chair on a tea tray. Um, you know, we had no money. We ate meat maybe once a week with chicken and rice and gravy on Sunday because the rest of the time it's all casseroles because there was no budget. They were, wow. you know, they never got greedy and stole anything. When my dad wrote bestsellers, the money all went into the ministry. I had, you know, whether you accept the theology or not, they were totally genuine. And so by the time I'd been on the 700 Club with Pat Robertson and I'd been to Oral Roberts University and I knew Oral Roberts and his son Richard, and I realized, you know, excuse me, we've now become part of a vast criminal enterprise, hiding behind 501c3 status, making people multimillionaires. In the case of Pat Robertson, his family actually became billionaires, inclusive of owning diamond mines in South Africa. Wow. And Jerry Falwell lent me his jet. I flew around the country in a private jet, which, by the way, was gifted to Liberty University by Menachem Begin, the then prime minister of Israel, <laughs> as a thank you for Falwell going to bat with him with Reagan 
to buy a new American radar system and jet. I mean, this is one world of crazy when you get into the religious right as I was. So my journey out just started saying, you know, I want to be an artist and I want to be a writer. And I thought that I could do that within the religious community because I was an authentically genuine evangelical believer. I was raised and indoctrinated. When I began to look at the big time version of that community, it was so disgusting and so ugly and so driven by rage and hate all the time in terms of the way they raised their money. Not that the leaders cared about one one iota of the things they talked about. It's all just a method. Um, I got really disgusted. And of course, once you pull at that tapestry thread and you begin to ask questions, sometimes the whole thing comes apart. So I wound up at a very different place that I chart in my book. And one of the things that I began to understand was that our human values really come from our evolutionary past. They don't come from the Bible. They don't come from religion. They come from who we actually evolved to be. Big surprise. That's people who care about each other. Hunter-gatherer societies wouldn't have survived unless there was some sharing, some caring. And so, you know, if you look at the science now, it's all moved from survival of the fittest, which is kind of a misinterpretation of Darwin, to a very different dynamic. And that's survival of the friendliest, those who can cooperate. And the irony of all ironies is some of the least cooperative people in our culture now are white evangelical Christians who, for instance, as we speak at this moment, are rebelling against getting vaccines because they have politicized even wearing a mask or getting a vaccine to the point where they're genuinely anti-science, not just in climate denial, but many things, homophobia and so forth. So, you know, the crazy thing is the journey that took me out of evangelical Christianity did not make me a non-spiritual person. It made me far more spiritual in the sense of actually having a real basis in my life, which is evolutionary biology, of caring for individuals, because this is what gives us joy. This is what makes us happy. It's not that I'm some sort of special kind of nice guy that I want to cook lunch for Nora today. She is my gene pool. I care about her. Therefore, I care about this community. Therefore, I go and pick her up in public school and do what I can there to help that because I care about this. That's how the human race actually works. And, and, and uh, you know, fall in love, have children, stay put, stay dependent, be happy is a call to what I call authentic family values that are science-based as opposed to the fake family values we were selling as a bludgeon with which to beat women back into conservative patriarchal roles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of the the sum total of a journey represented here away from fake family values to real ones. And and real family values don't just include pair-bonded or married families. They include non-binary people gay people. They include people with no children at all who are still caregivers in the community around them. So in that sense, we're all mothers. And that's a non-gendered term. We're all caregivers. And our choice is, do we want to live that way or pretend that we're really here because we, you know, studied engineering or we're the president of a corporation or we clean hotel rooms and we're defined by that career? Are we defined by career or relationships? And that's really the question the book asks. And of course, I have an agenda that I'm pushing there. Well, I mean, your comment about, you know, we're all mothers, you know, we should be, you know, think of ourselves as all mothers. I was reading about it. I was fascinated. And because of my experience with a lot of women authors, you know, I had reached that same kind of conclusion, you know, is that, oh my goodness, you know, we've got, we, us white males, have got a lot to learn. Yeah you know, from that perspective that I think is so, 
it's always been valuable. Now it's being recognized. I think yes, more and more is valuable, um, not just in books, but in politics and you know across the board. So uh, you know, I was gl- I was glad to see your terminology there of, of raising that you know um, that notion, you know that 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 concept. <clears throat> um, so you mentioned that it took you quite a few years to write this book. When you go back to think about how the book started, what motivated sure. you to to take that journey of all those years to write this? Well, there were two sort of big turning points that led to this book. My books, I have written novels, but my nonfiction is rather biographical. Like I wrote about my son. I wrote with my son, Keeping Faith While He Was in the Marine Corps, because that's what mattered most to me then. Um, I have five grandchildren. Two of them are grown, and they're in their in 20s, and they grew up in Europe. And the three littlest who grew up here are growing up here. We started doing childcare for. I began to compare my involvement with the childcare that I was giving them and the knowledge I was bringing to the table as a grandfather compared to my woeful ignorance uh, when I was a father as a teen after I got Jeannie pregnant when we were 17 and 18 in an evangelical fundamentalist community, no less. Couple things, you know, looking back at that, we were so fortunate that that community, while it got many things wrong, I think, got one thing right and that it was incredibly supportive of young families or even parents or single moms or dads, irrespective of whether they were pair bonded or married or whatever. And so, you know, my early opposition to abortion was really unfair because I was comparing other people to genies in my situation. We were teen parents. We kept our baby. Yeah, you kept your baby. All right. In a community that gave you a free place to live, paid all your medical bills, health insurance, a stipend, you could eat in the communal dining room for five years. Wow. Until we had our second child. Wow. So basically, we had moved to modern Scandinavia. Yeah. We had a whole social picture. This is an evangelical fundamentalist community. So my saying that, you know, I was pro-life at that point against pro-choice people was based in the fact that Jeannie and I had been handed what no one can even dream of when they're older, let alone as teens who get pregnant and they haven't you know, finished school, done anything. We were given total support. So you combine that with the, the, the love and the joy that I found in taking care of these three of my grandchildren here, my Marine son's children, and retros, you know, retrospectively looking back over my life, A, I have learned that to give people real choices is the only pro-family stand. And that means to give people a legal right to abortion, contraceptives, and all the rest of it, but also a legal right to support and childcare so they can have a career and a culture that does not have all this macho, testosterone-driven career bullshit that then transmutes to men and women where if they take some time with a child, it hurts their career because they're not as serious about their career. Why can't somebody leave work, male, female, non-binary, whatever, Go take care of a preschool-aged child, have that recognized and financially remunerated by the state because it actually is cheaper than what the state is going to be paying later in not just broken homes and criminality, but also less dramatically uh, in everything from healthcare to a bad educational result and so forth. Well, this is a no-brainer. And a lot of countries like Finland and Iceland already do this because it actually saves the government quite opposite of socialism. So in my book, I have a legislative program that would change the way we see Mm. these things, but it's more than that. I also lay out, besides legislation we need, 
a program to socially reorient ourselves in terms of childcare and who stays home, who goes back to work. We should be at a place where you never make an assumption about the gender of the person doing childcare, where it's an open question in, with a couple or even a single mom who is hiring somebody or having someone care for them. There should be no kind of gender bias whatsoever in this area. It isn't childcare biologically and historically is not women's work. It is community work. And the reason for that, as I go into in my book, is just straight off evolutionary biology. Humans would kill all their mothers instead of some of them when they're born if they were born with fully developed brains. Our brain is about a third of the size. Our head is about a third of the size when we're born as it would be if you went to gestation, full gestation, which would be about three years in humans. And of course, all our females would die. So all our babies are born premature. They have long childhoods because of the size of our brain development. This means other people besides the biological mother have to be involved. It has nothing to do with modern industrial complex where people have to go off to work outside the home and, and professional childcare. This is the way it's always been. So this weird biological evolutionary thing happened the father developed feelings of love and oxytocin levels and hormonal levels for babies, very similar to females. If they have a relationship with a child, not only that, perfect strangers did. Grandparents, nieces, aunt, nephew, other people in the village. We've always made child rearing a communal effort. Only in the mod, quote, modern world, which actually is a very backward world, have we sort of broken it into these bite-sized pieces where there's childcare professionals and then other people have, quote, serious jobs. The seamless garment of human community revolves around how long it takes to raise children. This is where all our institutions come from. And it's where, it's where the institution of marriage came from, some sort of cohabiting, pair bonding that was serious enough to keep things together. And then we gave it a religious spin, et cetera, et cetera. But it's all cart and horse. Really, the order of things is that we evolved to survive because we evolved the capacity to feel love. Love is not some touchy-feely holiday grift card uh, deal. You know, love is an actual thing that can be measured. Uh, it can not only be measured in humans, by the way, I have a whole chapter on how it's measured in dogs and that we should learn from dogs and we should even learn from trees that support each other with root systems and shared nutrients, et cetera. The whole of the biological world that we live in is one of mutual support. And we've broken it into these tiny pieces where, okay, a woman has a career, so she's got to wait until she's 47 to have a baby because we've told her you either have your career as a high-powered lawyer and judge, or you can have children. You cannot do both. And now she's spending $180,000 on in vitro fertilization. Something Michelle Obama talks about, by the way, very honestly, in terms of her own life trajectory. Um, she's one of the few people out there who dares to talk about biological clocks and stuff like that. Uh, she's great. Um, so when you look at it, the, 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 way we have, the way we have organized our culture around career uh, means that we have basically disfavored child care. We have made caring of all kinds secondary. It's women of color who are caring for elderly people, young people, children, and they don't get paid and they don't get benefits. And yet actually they do the only, seriously, the only job in culture, which you could actually say is strategically absolutely necessary. Everything else can go away or there can be less of it. Not this, or the whole culture dies. And yet they're the worst paid people. And somehow some CEO of Google uh, you know, gets trillions, millions, billions 
somebody somebody caring for the next generation is getting you know 950 an hour somewhere 12 if they're lucky maybe 15 if they're really generous often working for uh, wealthier people and so forth so my book uh, you know fall in love have children stay put save the planet really comes out of my experience of the joy of childcare and I say to people look we don't need to fix this because it's the right thing to do morally it happens to be we don't need to fix this because it makes sense economically. It happens to. We don't have to fix this because, um, you know, there's some in, call in the Bible to treat your neighbor as yourself. There is. We have to fix this because you can't be happy in a culture like ours. And I can prove it because in my book, I have all the statistics on the studies of loneliness, of teen suicide, of the number of deaths inflicted on cops by their handgun. Four times more cops kill themselves with their sidearm than are killed in the line of duty. Every place you look at our culture dri driven by this sort of testosterone-driven toxic masculinity, which then, by the way, we say to females, oh, you can be like us. Pretend you don't have families. If you get a call when you're doing a school pickup, tell people you're at the office because otherwise you won't be respected. Because, by the way, child care and family are not respected. So my book is a call for a revolution and a movement. And that is to undo American capitalist society as we know it, that is driven by only one set of values, shareholder profits. And I say, instead, it ought to be driven by the quality of our relationships and the joy we experience in life from those relationships. And that is across the board, as I say, as much about non-binary gay people and, and as much about females as males as much about pair bonded people and single people without children doesn't matter. Our definition of success and what we find joyful has to change or all the numbers are going to keep going south on things like loneliness and depression, the inability to maintain relationships, et cetera, et cetera. Everything that we're suffering from relates to having the idea that you are defined by your work and not by the quality of your life. Duh. It is a no-brainer. And the other context that the book comes from is COVID, because I had just sort of wrapped this thing up and, and, and we found a publisher, and all of a sudden, the whole pandemic began to hit. And I thought, you know, I hate to say this, but this book is at the right time at the right place, because now our entire society is having to rethink this, not because Frank Schaefer wrote a book that no one will pay attention to, but because we have been forced to stay home and confront the fact that all our patterns of life have been broken. And lo and behold, some males have found out they actually like sharing the, the work with their, with their spouse of childcare. Lo and behold, some very careerist, careerist males and females and non-binary people and gay people and straight people and black people are finding that they'd like to actually keep working at home and that their job sucks even though it was sold to them as their big ambitious thing. And lo and behold, a lot of students who were bent on college and had done all this fancy stuff to try to get into a great school find that they're doing, they're doing remote learning and that the kind of mystification of the college experience is gone. And the fact that they have an Olympic-sized swimming pool or single-bedroom dorms is gone. You're home living with your parents. You're thrown back into primary relationships. And now let's just see what you're made of. And everybody has been sort of rocked back. So the book comes out in the context of a culture 
that is actually asking these questions. You know, when I started writing this book five years ago, there were some editorials by women who were having trouble with IVF or something on maybe miscarriage, insensitivity, people not looking at this carefully, or moms who had high powered careers having trouble with childcare, or maybe a little murmur somewhere about all the women of color who work for rich white people and don't get paid to do childcare, but it wasn't a movement. And now quite honestly, I would challenge anybody listening to this, go through the Guardian, the New York Times, the Washington Post, New, you know, uh, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, go through the last three weeks of any of this stuff and you will find not one, not two, but dozens of articles related to back to work concerns. Google, for instance, in just a few days ago, said that their workers were all going to have to take a pay cut if they choose to stay home because they're trying to get them back to work. Goldman Sachs chairman said that staying working from home is aberration. I want everybody back. Why? Because human beings are pushing back against shareholder-driven corporate America. Not because of my book. The book's not out yet. It comes out November 2nd. So I am hopeful you know, that when you write a manifesto that changes things, it has to be in the right time and right place. But with a little bit of luck, sad as I am about all the effects and a couple friends of mine who have died of COVID, if something good comes out of COVID, it will be this. And that is we're going to recognize we're more into, into, into interdependent and that we do need other people. And we are going to recognize the folly of having been forced by corporate America to adopt a lifestyle which guarantees a lack of satisfaction with our lives. Guarantees. That's it. So uh, let's stop looking at gross national product to define everything. And let's start looking at happiness. Let's start looking at joy. Let's start looking at relationships. Let's start having the quiet moments, not forced upon us by a global pandemic, but chosen. And let's fight the corporations and let's fight the government if we have to and demand some actual changes which reorient the 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 kind of priorities of our culture. And luckily, because of COVID, a lot of what Joe Biden has done in terms of child subsidies and all these other things are beginning to move in that direction by popular demand. So it isn't even just a Republican Democratic issue. People in general favor these sorts of policies. And I've listed what they must be uh, in my book. Well, um, you know, the good news is that, you know, quality relationships and quality of business are not mutually exclusive. Right. right. There's a lot more people in the business world learning exactly that. Exactly. So I, th I think that that's a good sign. Another good sign is that we've seen, you know, as we're gradually coming out of the pandemic, a lot of people are choosing not to go back to work. Yes. Right. You know, and then and, and, and I, th I think from what I've read that that's overly um, driven by childcare and, and women making choices, you yeah. know, uh, or, or, or sometimes forced choices. Yeah. Um, about that issue. But I think in, in some cases, at least, uh, you know, there's the um, early retirement, so to speak, you yes. know, people to do what you're doing, mm -hmm. um, you know, to take care of their grandkids or, you know, kind of the greater community of whoever it is that they yeah. need to care for. So at least there's a couple of good signs, I think, as well as, you know, some of the, um, you know, political uh, initiatives that you yeah. mentioned that, you know, are also supporting what you're what you're what you're saying. Yeah. And it's not just parenthood. You know, I, on my podcast, I have a thing called In Conversation with Frank Schaefer that people can look at once in a while when they're not watching yours. And in conversation with Frank Schaefer last week, and I, uh, I was talking to Felicia Davis, who happens to be the CEO of the Chicago Women's Foundation that gives away millions of dollars to groups that help women practically 
housing costs, education, battered women, place to live, homelessness. Felicia comes out of a really interesting background. She's a black woman who was the a detective with the Chicago police force in the violent crime division for 10 years. Talk about seeing the hard side of life. After that, she worked with Rahm Emanuel when he was mayor of Chicago uh, and uh, in a very senior position. And now she's the CEO of the Chicago Women's Foundation. Well, I asked her something really interesting. I said to her, in your experience, you know, have you ever had to kind of try to hide what you do as a caregiver in order to bolster your career? Because I have some women friends who said, and men too, by the way, that they aren't honest about child needs. They're doing a school pickup and they say they're going to run an errand or to the office because you're not taken as seriously if you're a caregiver. So she laughed and she said, tell me about it. We could do a whole episode on how on navigating that. She said, I'll give you an example from right now. And she's a mother uh, of, of, on top of everything else. Um, but she said, I'm going to give you an example from another kind of caretaking right now. My mother's sick. She's an elderly woman and I am having to care for her. She's in the bad old days. She said, I might have not told people that I'd pretend I was at the office. And now I just say, hey, listen, I know I should be at the office. I know this is the time when I'm supposed to be working. I am going to see my mom and take care of her because she's sick right now. You got a problem with that? And God bless her. I mean, that's the deal. You know, when people were doing Zoom meetings and suddenly there were children showing up in them, my daughter, who happens to be the CEO of an investment company in New York and has two kids, my two older grandchildren, who I've spent a lot of time with over the years, they've come and helped me doing builder projects, all sorts of stuff but they didn't live across the street. I asked Jessica to write something in uh, my book. Uh, and I told her, I said, okay, I'm, I'm looking for an example of something, Jessica. And I'll just tell you this thing, because I think it's fascinating. Um, and I'm reading this from the forward. As my daughter, Jessica, CEO of, a, CEO of a green energy investment company in New York, put it, quote, businesses were established by men. They pretended they had no families. Families and women stayed home. When women joined the workforce, the deal was we pretended we didn't have a family either and played by men's rules. And then she says COVID came along and business meetings were on Zoom. Everyone was working from home. Family life was out in the open. Babies ran through online meetings. Toilets flushed in the background. I was meeting with the president of a bank on Zoom yesterday and he whispered, I have to talk quietly or I'll wake the baby. She just went down for a nap. It's a bank president. <laughs> That's great. Not only were families suddenly visible, people seemed to be getting used to the fact they didn't have to hide them. And then another, uh, another. Uh, that's my daughter, by the way. And another woman friend of mine, um, you know, commented on the fact that whether it's a doctor's appointment or maybe a school event, when I'm on a professional call, I find myself not wanting to admit where I am. For instance, I say I'm at the office, not doing a school pickup. I wouldn't say that I've completely stopped doing that these days. But after COVID, I'm much more forthright about my actual life and priorities. And if you want to know what the problem is, it's really outlined in The Power of Giving Away Power by Matthew Barzon, who quotes, uh, who quotes his Simon Sinek, who was his editor, as saying this, our society has overextended on rugged individualism. We emulated the big personality leaders who presented an image of the, quote, strong man, the genius in the room. As the high-performing individual became standard, company structures transformed to feed the beast. They adapted their incentive and reward systems to recognize individual performance 
almost exclusively. Ethics, teamwork, and leadership qualities seemed to fall by the wayside when we evaluated people for promotion. Well, it goes even further than that. Women and male caregivers as well, and non-binary people who have experience, say, in caregiving of a mother or a friend or a relative or someone they saw through the AIDS epidemic or a child. How many times do you see that on a resume? I'm qualified to be bank president because I've been a damn good mother managing four people's schedules at home. And I learned more there, which my daughter will tell you as a CEO of an investment company, that she learned more being a mom juggling her, those events with her children than she did from any business training. How many people think about that? Yeah. And, you know, so I know a woman who, by the way, I'm going to interview on my podcast conversations with Frank Schaefer in conversation with Frank Schaefer. I just had her drawn to my attention to. She has just started an organization an organization um, that has a really simple title. Include being a include motherhood in your resume. <laughs> and that's the whole organization. And I think she's going to have a lot of women and some men too who want to sign up. Why shouldn't we include parenthood in our resume? So, you know, that's the whole package that I'm talking about. And, and I think, and I hope that because of COVID, it's going to find more of an audience that might have otherwise, because I'm not asking these questions into a vacuum. This isn't the first time you've heard of this stuff. It's all over the place now. It wasn't when I started the project. It is now. And I would like to provide the actual agenda to people who basically say, hey, you know, re what he says. That's what yeah. I'm hoping the book yeah. does. I think, it's, I think the timing of it is excellent. I think your choice to delay the introduction of it was really, really smart. Yeah. Well, that was my editor, good old Christine. Blair. Well, I think it has a lot of relevance, you know, right yeah. now that, you know, wouldn't have been as evident uh, yes. back then. Um, I know you talk about this in the book, but what, you know, kind of quickly do you have in terms of advice for people who are struggling with the whole work-life balance thing? Well, who am I to give anybody advice? Because I sit in a privileged position. I'm part of the white ruling class. I'm a male. I'm totally aware of that. That's why I quote people like Nicole Lynn Lewis, who's written this wonderful book called Pregnant Girl, who's a black activist, started a, a whole organization to help young people who get pregnant in school finish their educations. There are people like that out there more qualified, like Nicole Lynn Lewis, to give real advice because she struggled from a much harder place than my place of privilege. That said, it's a question of prioritization and it's a question of activism. You know, do we really want to make the agenda of a legislative set of changes that, for instance, would guarantee your place in a company after taking significant years of child leave for males and females and non-binary people alike, that it would be illegal for instance, to not allow a resident to finish their medical training if uh, he and his, his partner got pregnant and he wanted to stay home and take care of the baby so his wife could finish her law school. And he could come back a year later and it would be legal. The school would be fined and people would be you know, punished if they did not roll with that. That would be one thing, an actual change of legislation that guarantees the employment rights of people who take time off to work with their own children. Secondly, legislative changes that guarantee some basic income for families with children so that we lift people out of child poverty and we give people options. The third thing, no more child care being an underpaid, undervalued activity. Parents who stay home with their children ought to receive full social security benefits alongside those who, quote, go to work. Well, what the hell have the parents who have been raising their kids doing if not going to work? Why isn't this recognized 
in retirement. Those are those sorts of changes we need. But we also need social changes of, you know, that a young man comes along and he's told, finish your education, get a high-powered career. And by the way, you know, do some extreme sports, cool things. No one tells him this is all bullshit, by the way. You're going you're gonna to live to be my age, being 69 years old. And you're going to look back and you're going to say, you know, all that crap about that I strove for so hard. I can't even remember this shit. But, you know, man, am I glad that I have grandchildren to care for. Man, am I glad that I had some sort of pair bonding relationship out of which some actual life came. Let's tell younger people the truth. Life is really long. The, the young child care years are really short. Yeah. Gone like right now, know. I'm running out of grandchildren. My youngest <laughs> grandchild, seven. What, a, what the hell am I going to do when she goes back? It, it was a gift to me when she was out of school for COVID because it was Camp Schaefer. I took care of her. Now they're all going back to school again. What am I supposed to do? I know that's a little crazy and I'm joking, but I'm being serious. No, no, I can it's relate to part this. Of life. Yeah. Okay. But then here's another thing, and that is let's redefine how we see success. And that also includes monetarily. You know, one of the great curses of our culture is how much we move around following jobs. And all of a sudden we're alone. We've moved 11 times for career or for school or this or that. Nobody's living anywhere near anybody. And then all of a sudden we say we're lonely and we can't maintain our relationships. Listen, this is not how humans evolve to be. You know, if you want to be happy, I'm not saying we've all got to have good family relationships. God knows I've burned enough bridges with leaving the fundamentalist community. And I have my own family break up with sisters and others who have questioned what I've done. Now we're all friends again, but man, I've been through it. That said, really think hard about not being near family, not having stability in your life. You know, that's why part of this title is stay put. I'm not saying it's evil to move, but God damn it. I mean, if you think that, you know, you go to college one place and you move to Cincinnati and now you're in California because think, but your whole family's in, you know, in Wisconsin and you wake up one morning saying, gee, I've just had a child and I feel really alone. Duh. I mean, all the natural relationships are gone. Look at the other end of life. You know, the Berlin study I cite in my book says that the single greatest factor of longevity is not smoking or diabetes for elderly people. It's whether you're caring for a grandchild or another child. Mm. It does more to actually average lifespan increases by five to seven years. And it's nothing to do with morality. It's to do with um, whatever activity is going to, you know, all the things that are supposed to engage your brain. Nothing engages your brain like childcare for good or bad, you know, uh, nothing wakes you up in the morning. So, you know, all, all the patterns of life we've got segregate the generations. We stick old people off somewhere. They live in, they choose to live in communities you're not allowed to live in unless you're 55 or older or 60 years older. This is working out? Not at all. Um, you know, kids are stuck in daycare. Moms and dads are working, you know, two careers and maybe see somebody on the weekends Everybody moves 11 times during their life for career. Oh, and then we're not going to provide childcare anyway. So now we're broke. And then we sit down at the end of the day and we say, how come people aren't forming pair bonded relationships and having kids? What's happened to the joy of parenthood? Why are we all feeling so put upon? How come nobody seems to have any time? And the only way you can get off that treadmill, besides the legislation and the social change, is by raising, here's my real advice, Raise your expectations in the area of relationships and lower your demands when it comes to material prosperity, period. Choose to live more simply, but better if that's what you've got to do, because you are better off in a two room apartment or a small house or a rural community. If you have people near you who you love 
the job may be lower paying, but if you have the time to actually go deep into the relationships that sustain you most, rather than that high powered thing that you thought was going to be so great. And I, I don't know what you use on your podcast in terms of language, but just turned out to be another effing job. Because in the end, work is just another effing job. I don't care if you're the chairman of Google. Whereas uh, when my mom was dying, as I talk about in the book, and I was on a, 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 a computer call because she was in Switzerland. I'd been over there with her thinking she was dying. I came home. She actually died over there with my niece. Um, but my little granddaughter, Lucy, at that time, who was the little one, was sitting on my lap. And after my mom passed away and Lucy had been talking to her online, and I told Lucy, I'm very, very sad my mom's gone. She was only three. She put her arms around my neck and said, but you have me. Okay, that's the, an in case you're wondering, that's the answer to every question you have in life. But you have me. When you stop having people around you who put their arms around your neck and say, but you have me, you are screwed. And we've designed a culture to make sure we have less and less people around us who put their arms around your neck and say, but you have me. So big, powerful, sexy job, lots of money, or a situation where you increase the chance of someone who says, but you have me when you need them. Don't be a fool. Google won't tell you this. Facebook won't tell you this. Nobody will tell you this. Goldman Sachs operates trying on the whole basis of trying that nobody has to know about this. But I'm telling you the truth. If those two paths are forming, whatever decisions you're making, that put more people in your life who put their arms around your neck and say, but you have me, whatever the situation compared to this high powered, sexy career bullshit, take the path that leads to people. Now, nothing's perfect. It's not one or the other. We all have to earn a living. I'm sitting here pushing a book on a podcast that I want to sell because I spent five years writing it, but you can make choices. I'm doing this sitting, talking to Brian, and I'm not out there somewhere on a speaking tour of the college circuit, because guess what? I might sell less books that way because I've, I've done a lot of speaking in my time. I don't care because I want to be here for Jack, Lucy and Nora. That's what I really, really care about. They need me to put my arms around their neck and say, but you have me. So I've made some choices. I earn a lot less money than I would otherwise. Jeannie and I took Social Security early and therefore got a little less to compensate for the fact that I had stopped in the big striving thing. We've got our Medicare going so we could work less and do more with these children. And the result is I have more people around me who say, but you have me. And I think it's the best trade I ever made. So we can all do that in various ways. And it's a question of setting out life priorities and then doing our best. And then we're going to fall short, but we do our best. That's, that's my best shot. Well, Frank, uh, thank you so much, you know, first of all, for doing this. It's an amazing book. You know, I think it's, it's like <clears throat> going to be great reading for a lot of people. Some people are going to have a hard time, you mm -hmm. know, taking that advice, right? I mean, it's one thing for people like you and I in our stage of life. It's another yeah. thing if you're in your 20s or whatever. It's a little bit right. harder to swallow, I would suspect. Yes. But, um, you know, I think having said that, there are a lot of people already that are realizing, you know, some of these uh, lessons that um, – that we've learned. So yeah. in any event, um, let people know again where they can find the book. Okay. Well, the title is Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. My name is Frank Schaefer, and you can do me the most good if you happen to like this message by doing two things. You can pre-order it on Amazon, 
And ironically, that means more small bookstores, independent bookstores, if that's where you buy books, they will stock it because sadly, everybody hates Amazon, but everybody looks to their the ratings to see if a book's serious. It means my book will get reviewed more. It'll be noticed more. It'll be in more small bookstores. So if you're going to buy this book anyway, do me a huge personal, massive favor, and that is buy, fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy online, off Amazon early. So it's delivered a day or so after November 2nd when it's in the bookstores. And the second thing is, if you have a book club or a group or a mother-in-law or anybody you ever do booky things with, I do whatever will help my book thrive and get this message going and this movement going free of charge. I will do a Zoom call. You, I will do a book club. I will speak to your group, your church, your college class. I will take a class if you're a teacher, whatever it takes. If you will just pre-order a few copies of this book, I'm there with you. And I uh, will do anything I can to support your interest in the book by interacting with you on Zoom. So you can get in touch with me. Um, and I, uh, Brian's going to post the link to whatever it is, yes, how, how we all link up. Yep. Well, that's really generous of you, Frank. And isn't it amazing that we have things like Zoom, right? So you can do yeah. that kind of participation, you know, while yeah. still being across the street from your grandkids, right? I mean, yeah. And the thing is, I'm being serious. You know, I've had a lot of feedback, particularly from women <clears throat> who happen to love this book, the, the women who have read it, starting with my editor, Christine Belaris, but, you know, people like Jose Zilstra, who is the chairman of Gender Fair, which is a, 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 a nonprofit that rates American corporations based on how they treat women hmm. and Jose and, and gender fair using this book uh, and, and hopefully, you know, corporations or people with a little more enlightened spirit will read it. You know, I don't expect Goldman Sachs to be giving this book away with uh, you know, <laughs> every new account a zillionaire opens, but there, but there are companies uh, like AstraZeneca, for instance, who have a CEO who's very, uh, open to trying to do better things for families and these kinds of things. So, um, you know, with Jose Zelstra and people like that involved, women who do things for women involved with this book, I'm hoping it finds an audience. And in all seriousness, if you have a little book group somewhere, um, just pre-order the book, get in touch with me, and I will be very happy to be part of your book club and answer questions and help you get something going in your area, or maybe put you in touch with someone like Jose who's running, uh, you know, an organization to help women or uh, other folks like that. And so I'm encouraged that a lot of women seem to like this book. And, and that, that, that I think means that it's somewhat on the right track because I trust uh, women. I have a whole chapter on feminism in the book and why I consider myself a feminist. Good, good, good. Well, Frank, thank you again for doing this. And thanks for joining us to tell us all about uh, the story and, and your, your beliefs, you know, your your writing and, and uh, your work in this area. Thank you very much, Brandon. Thanks for the opportunity.